Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's The Wonky Show. We're talking racism at universities, sex, drugs and rock and roll and a new journal of controversial ideas. It's all coming up. Wider World is looking at this more. All of the reports in, uh, in we've seen recently from schools, um, universities, um, the workplace um, and you know it's probably time to start really getting serious about this i mean from from the moment that um that you know the student movement has been talking about this for probably the last 15 to 20 years and certainly uh, we will... welcome to the wonky show your direct way into this week's higher education news policy and analysis i'm wonky's editor-in-chief mark leach and here to help us wallpaper the walls of policy this week are three brilliant guests as usual. In Manchester, it's Ben Ward, CEO of Manchester Students' Union. Uh, ben, your hire of the week, please. Uh, well, it's it's work related. So yesterday, for the first time, I think since I've been in post, we got all of the Russell Group Students' Union chief execs together to say we should probably do some stuff and um, start to work together. You know, the the ramp- rampant rise of the mission groups, I think, needs a strategic Students' Union response. And that was really energising. Hmm. Didn't there used to be one? The Aldrich Group, wasn't that? They did. So that's looking to be reformed as well for student officers, which I think is a really positive move. And in Cumbria, uh, we have Eunice Simmons, Vice-Chancellor of University of Chester. Eunice, your highlight of the week, please. So my highlight over the past week has been watching spring really return. It's been great to see and hear lapwings returning from winter quarters, swallows jostling for position on telephone wires outside the house. Actually, lots of bees and butterflies. Early emergers such as orange tips, small tortoiseshells, etc. So despite all those hard frosts, spring's finally arrived. It has indeed. And in London, Debbie McVitie, Wonky's editor. Debbie, your highlight of the week. Hiya. Uh, my highlight of the week has definitely got to be the Wonky at Home event that we ran yesterday, which was a micro commission on the future of learning resources. And uh, we brought, uh, I ho- our, our, well, our speakers really brought a lot of uh, considered reflection and, and sanity and constructiveness to what, what, what's become a very heated debate. So it uh, definitely gives me hope for, for finding a way forward. Now, we start the week with the topic of racism at universities. And uh, this week, BBC Three aired a documentary called Is Uni Racist? Uh, in which we heard from um, the Vice-Chancellor of University of East Anglia, Dave Richardson. Um, Here's a clip. The uni's processes have had a huge toll on the mental health of some students. And after going through the complaint system, it seems like students aren't being told of the outcome. I want to see what the unis have to say about this. Universities UK represent 140 universities across the country, including the ones featured so far. Last year, they established a group on racial harassment, and I'm meeting the UEA Vice-Chancellor, Professor David Richardson, who leads the group. What do you think is the experience of black and sort of other ethnic minority students in the UK at university? There's mixed experiences, but many aren't good. Um, There's a lot of evidence that uh, uh, points towards universities perpetuating systemic racism, being institutionally racist. And I actually have acknowledged that on behalf of the sector. Sorry, can I just, are you saying that universities are institutionally racist? Yes. You're saying that they're racist? Yes. Okay. 
That's huge. Institutional racism is when there are systemic issues that are impacting uh, disproportionately on, on, on particular members of your community right. which need to be dismantled. And it's clear that there are. What do you think about the complaints process at universities when it comes to reporting racial harassment? I think that the reporting of racial harassment in universities is, is underreported. Mm. I think that historically students um, who have experienced racial harassment have not felt able to report it or felt safe to report it for various reasons. There is a view that universities are sort of downplaying the level of racism at institutions across the country. Do you get that? Is there any truth in that at all? Um, I understand where the view comes from. I'm not playing it down in the slightest. Perhaps governing bodies were concerned about the reputational impact of, 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 of the university um, being seen to be a place that was, um, you know, institutionally racist. Uh, and I, I, I think five years ago, people, leaders of universities would not have called this problem out. Lots of students um, are telling me that their universities won't let them know the outcome of their complaints. Mm -hmm. And I just think that's really strange. Like, is there any truth in that? Why is uh, that? There will be truth in that. There are issues around every individual's right for data protection and, uh, and you need to be very careful about disclosure of outcomes. I've chaired two meetings to actually develop guidance for the sector that keeps us the right side of the law. What I've heard is that they feel like it might impact their, you know, their grades, their course, they, their career after uni. That, that, that's disappointing. Um, and that it, if that's how the students feel, then we need to acknowledge that and put in place better support to make them feel safe and to, to help them be reassured that this will not damage their grades at all. David's group published guidance and recommendations for unis in November last year, and he's confident this will improve the experience of black and ethnic minority students. Summer 2022 is when we're going to do the full evaluation, and we do need to give it some time for universities yeah. to put this in, into their infrastructure. Yeah, so I need to sort of check back in with you, you in do. a year's time. You do, yes. Okay. Yeah. I really will. I'll be keen to find out. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for talking to me. Thank you. In one sense, I was kind of impressed with him, but I came back to my senses almost, and I was just like, but I've heard this before. And I guess the question is, is this going to be different from all the other times that we've heard this before? Eunice, there's a lot to unpack here. Uh, what stood out from, from the documentary for you? Yes, well, it was good to see a Nottingham Trent journalist, Linda Ade, presenting this Perfect Storm programme. She really covered some important grounds in different universities across the country, basically by listening to students sharing some pretty awful experiences. So racial profiling, abusive language, racist student drama. But actually, what really stood out, and I think what we should focus on, is the theme of reporting of racial harassment and what happens then to the people who report it, at least what do they get told about it, um, and how are they dealt with as the process goes forward? Because there was a, a recurring theme about university processes almost versus the complainant, which I think came through strongly. Yes, Debbie, I mean, one of the one of the takeaways is, is from this whole thing clearly is about... Um, how processes applied and, and people feeling kind of disempowered by by this kind of thing. 
Yeah, and I think it was, you know, your, your heart enormously goes out to these students because, of course, they just don't have the same sight of, of, of why the processes are the way they are as universities do. And, it's, and what, what, what struck me, I think, was, and, and it's clear that in some cases, you know, the processes had been run in, in, in a quite a sort of, you know, an inhuman way, which sort of tends to be the nature of process. But I think there's, there's also something about formal processes that just are, um, are, can be, you know, quite disempowering. And I think it speaks to uh, universities exploring what, what might happen, what to uh, support students in the first instance who have uh, had these kinds of experiences and, 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 and offer them a kind of a, a person, a name, you know, a human being with a face that they can talk to and, and kind of process that experience and think about what, what it is they want to do about it and what they want. And also what actions might be taken short of a formal complaint. Um, you know, if, if a student, you know, want, want, wants to go through that process and, and is committed to that and, and, and has the support in place, they should absolutely be entitled to do so. But it struck me that one of the kind of really unfortunate consequences of taking it to that point um was was that that then student that student then brought down upon you know it was you know in incidents incidences that perhaps in some cases could have been resolved uh, with an apology you know that was all the student wanted were then sort of escalated into this kind of enormous thing where the student themselves then became at the center of, of a row about race and and then became subject to even more abuse than than, than the kind of incident that they'd, they'd first experienced you know creating in some cases kind of you know serious mental health issues and need to drop out and you just think you know it, the fact that it was able to get to that point in these cases um, sort of su- suggests that there, there needs to be much more attention paid to that kind of immediate point of, of, of the aftermath, the support that's put in place, and 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 how that student is enabled and empowered to kind of get get what they want from the process. I, I guess we're also a year on from from the Black Lives Matter movement really really coming to public consciousness. Uh, ben, I'm, I'm interested to get your sense of what's changed at university really since you know since since that since that rocketed up the agenda. Well. Um... I think change would probably be putting it strongly. I, th- I think what's happened is a renewed impetus and renewed focus to uh, develop meaningful strategies, but more than anything, meaningful engagement. So, you know, I was, uh, you know, interested to hear y- you talk about um, listening to students. And uh, I think universities are realizing that it has to be a um, victim centered approach and putting that package of support around whether it's um, racial harassment, sexual harassment. Um, you know, a renewed focus on putting the students at the centre of um, of change. Um, certainly, student unions have been working closely for years with um, university leadership to drive EDI strategy um, to put things on the agenda and keep them on the agenda, so these things don't get forgotten. Um, I think it's too early to say whether there's been any um, any meaningful change. I, I read in a, a recent wonky blog ar- around the uh, recent uh, Universities UK report making very similar recommendations to a Leadership Foundation report almost 10 years ago. Um, so I think we w- we'll wait and see, um, see whether meaningful change happens. Mark, I wonder if I could come in here because I absolutely agree that these are hurtful experiences. The quickest way to address the hurt fully is to enable the student to have sufficient trust to feel they can safely discuss it with their university and also then to be kept informed of what action follows. So I think that the complainant needs to see evidence that there's been an improvement in university systems in a way, not just that they've been followed. I mean, it was very telling when one contributor said, you know, people will continue to make dark and dangerous jokes in other, and the student was called out, you know, for inappropriate behaviour. They were castigated for it by the students. So neither that nor the original incident were dealt with sufficiently carefully. 
I think. There, there is this, I mean, and, and I wrote about this earlier in the week for the site, there is this kind of wider political uh, backlash, I suppose, against this idea of institutional racism. And I can see that um, it, what, what you know, when, when David Richardson said it in, in November on Monkey, you know, he sort of said, you know, yes, this is institutional racism and, and we're thinking about it that way as a sector. That's how we're going to tackle it as a sector. Um, you know, that felt like a really quite, quite a big step and, you know, and a really important step uh, for the sector to come to terms with. And, and now, of course, we've got sort of politicians and saying, you know, oh, well, we think this idea of institutional racism is overplayed and uh, we're very we're very nervous about the idea of, of kind of uh, theories that, that that sort of position uh, people of color in a kind of victim you know p- you know enforce enforce a victim mentality but of course that's not what uh, that's not what this analysis is doing it's very much saying how do we bring everyone together look you know look look at the way we do things and look at the outcomes and 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 you know and really really make change and that's you know so it's it is really kind of great that i guess universities are not running scared uh, of the of the sort of wider cultural backlash <laughs> against this idea Absolutely not. I mean, to be quite honest, um, our students of colour are absolutely behind this and involved in it. You know, they're well behind it. They're actually in the front of it. Um, And that's as it should be. Likewise, our staff. So it is really odd to say that there's an institution, any institution, university uh, or otherwise, where things aren't even and fair. And yet we won't tackle it as an institution. That just doesn't make sense. Right. Also this week. Uh, Michelle Donlan faced MPs at the Education Select Committee in the House of Commons, and that ended up as a row about anti-Semitism at uh, universities. And, and Robert Halfon, in particular, the uh, chair of the committee, uh, had some very strong words. Why is that not acceptable? Why would you not intervene uh, to deal with this and tell Bristol um, the vice chancellor that enough is enough and that uh, we're not living in 1930s Germany and that they should deal with this problem and, uh, uh, and make sure that Bristol University is not a hostile environment to, to Jewish students. Yeah, so universities in this country are autonomous. It's important that they then do this investigation and assess you know, what was uh, said which was lawful, what was said that wasn't lawful. There's a, a higher education regulator as well, which is the Office for Students. I will await that, that report. I completely agree with you. Anti-Semitism has no place in our universities. Um, and, uh, and and I find it completely abhorrent. We've even given money to the Union of Jewish Students to assist uh, with ensuring that campuses can be a, a safe... Have you discussed this issue with the Vice-Chancellor I'm of the University? So on this, I am awaiting the conclusions of the review, after which I will indeed speak to the Vice-Chancellor. So just to understand, how do you and the government intend to give confidence to Jewish students that anti-Semitism is taken seriously? In the wake of high profiles of anti-Semitism, others in other other campuses, but this is a particularly high profile one and pretty pretty shocking and disappointing. How 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 uh, how do you give one? How do you intend to give confidence to Jewish students that this is not acceptable and that actually the government will take action? So there's a number of things that we've been doing in this space. So we've been encouraging universities to sign up to the IHRA definition. We've now got 98 and others considering. That that, as I said before, the Secretary of State wrote to the OFS in, in February, where we asked them to do a scoping exercise of those that had and hadn't uh, signed up and a uh, and to look at potentially asking universities to um, publicise their incidences so it's much more transparent. So students who are uh, young people who are looking to go to university will have a clearer picture uh, of what those universities uh, represent in terms of tolerance, etc., um, and in addition, like I said, we were also giving money to the Union of um, Jewish Students to ensure that we can uh, encourage 
uh, a much more um, supportive environment. I meet with uh, a number of representatives in this area and I agree with you, more work needs to be done. But on this specific example, we will wait for that that review and uh, and see exactly what it concludes. Will you, will you then have conversations with the senior management at Bristol University? Absolutely, yes. Uh, I, I hesitate to separate anti-Semitism from, um, from this broader uh, racist racism agenda but there is a set there is a kind of particular set of issues isn't there about the experience of Jewish students and and this isn't going away and, and I think the media has picked up on on kind of a deficit area I mean Ben I'm interested to know what the atmosphere is like at Manchester at the moment when it comes to this question well I, I mean we are often at the forefront of, um, of of this debate. Um, you know, traditionally, high numbers of uh, of Jewish students at Manchester connected to uh, local Jewish communities, um, but it coupled with lots of activism on campus around the Israel Palestine question. Now, you know, has there been uh, as much conflict and activism as uh, uh, normal years outside of a pandemic? No. Is the issue bubbling under? Yes. Um, one of the things that I think you know we have to do as an organization is recognize anti-semitism exists um, support the definitions of anti-semitism undertake uh, training for our uh, officers and staff to recognize and call out where anti-semitism exists and we've got lots of learning to do as we have for all forms of racism and discrimination you know so i'm interested to know where you've got to as a university at um at chester and particularly in the in the IHRA definition, which I know has been dominating a lot of discussion at governing bodies the last uh, last several months, it has. Well, we've got a subcommittee of governing body called Mission Committee, uh, and we have agreed through that, and we've signed the IHRA. Um, obviously, cognizant also of our legal obligations um, across you know the whole equality arena. But interesting, I, I went on a visit to Auschwitz a few years ago with some other VCs, my then VP Education, and the Union of Jewish Students. And on the one hand, it, it felt so wrong to actually be standing almost like a, a tourist on the site of such atrocities. On the other hand, it was a profound experience. I think it's given me much more of a radar to be alive to anti-Semitic undercurrents and actions. I mean, what, what struck me, I think, as well about this select committee hearing was the MP suggesting that uh, essentially that, you know, Michelle Donnellan as university's minister should be picking up the phone to the vice chancellor at Bristol and, and, and kind of saying, well, why, why, haven't, why haven't you sacked this man yet? What are you doing? We want, we want you know, reports of progress. Um, and of course, that... that it's sort of it's evidence of the strength of feeling, I suppose, about the issue and 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 the sort of the the importance of of universities being quite as transparent as they can be, given you know given the circumstances of being essentially a kind of you know an investigation into into the conduct of a staff member um, about, about about how they're handling these issues. Um, but I, but it also I think. Uh, it, you know, it, it, it is interesting, isn't it, that, that MPs are under the impression that that would be a reasonable thing for, for a university's minister to do. Um, and I think it says something about kind of how, how politicised universities are becoming um, and, and how much influence, you know, policymakers think they should have, you know. I think that's right. But they also, it, it indicates how they still, well, they're, they're starting to view universities as really part of the school system where they can reach in um, and take an action or shake it up. But I think that, I think in the public would probably wouldn't understand why not they it's it, it sort of i think they're tapping into kind of it, it's sort of common sense people would people would assume that that uh, ministers might have some say over what goes on at universities and, and their policies i think i guess they would although quite how they would manage you know uh, hundreds of uh, higher education institutions um, as well as run dfe and do everything else i'm not quite sure um i i do think that the the interventionist approach is not going to solve this 
Uh, on the other hand, I do think that anti-Semitism is still very much with us. So I'm entirely sympathetic to the view that we just have to have our, our antennae out for it. Yeah, and I'd be interested to hear what um, the regulator has to say about this. Um, I get the impression that there are, there's lots of things coming out of the Department for Education that maybe the regulator has. I think also it speaks to, you know, it, it speaks to that difference between the kind of symbolic adoption of a position, um, you know, or, you know or, and, and I think, you know, we're talking, we're talking about institutional racism, you know, for, for David Richardson to stand up and say, yes, universities are institutionally racist is a brave thing to do. Likewise, to choose to adopt the IHRA uh, definition of antisemitism is, you know, it, it takes a position, it is, it, it, you know, it, it puts you on, you know, on one side of a fence. Um, and that is, uh, I think, a really important thing for universities to do as kind of, you know, in, in their public and civic role that, you know, but, but you really do need to back it up with action. And, um, and, and that is, uh, you know, that, that is the most important thing. Right. Let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Hi, I'm Claire Taylor, Deputy Vice-Chancellor and Professor of Education at Wrexham Glyndore University. I've been thinking about asking questions and my piece offers a provocation around moving away from functional questions that consider what, who, when, uh, very much a focus of the past year, towards creating space for asking more powerful questions as we look to the future. And for me, it's the why questions that we need to be better at asking. Asking why moves away from the operational and transactional into the realms of inspiration and innovation. And in my view, we really need this as a sector as we move out of a period focused on COVID response. But in addition, in my piece, I also suggest we need to facilitate opportunities and space for new voices to ask why across the sector and within our own organisations. We need to be prepared to seek diversity of thought, listen to different voices and step beyond our comfort zone. Someone once said, the future belongs to the curious. So uh, let's have a go. Let's move away from asking what and when and move into the space that asks why. Now, Heppy is out with a new report about students and sex. And there's research about student drug taking too. Ben, talk us through it. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, uh, the much mooted mass return to uh, universities on the, the 17th of May is fast approaching. Um, two pieces of research came out this week. So HEPI published a report on its polling of uh, around 1,000 students uh, in partnership with Usight. Um And only a small minority of students felt well edu educated about sex and relationships prior to entering higher education. Um, but the most interesting stat and the one that's really hitting the headlines is 58% of students agreeing with the proposal that students be required to pass sexual consent assessments before arriving at university. Um, and, you know, we are, I suppose, back into this cycle of talking about um, uh, consent classes. You know, every time we've tried to do it, um, the fury of uh, certain elements of the, uh, the press uh, bears down on universities and student unions. And I'm talking from the hidden mark survey that NUS did all of those years ago, 10 years ago this year, uh, right to now. Uh, and the second thing from students organising for sustainability um, conducted a piece of research on drug use at university. Uh, only 13% of students reported taking drugs, um, but their peers actually believe that 85% of students did. So a real mismatch between reality and perception. Mm. Uh, did, they, did either these pieces of research ring true, though, for you, Eunice, and, and, and what you know about your students? Well, certainly thinking about the, the drugs one, um, 
Yes, because I think um, there's, there's there's peer sort of both peer pressure to get involved in drugs, and that's um, still that's highlighted in the research. Um, but there's also a sort of a, a folklore about it, and I guess that's probably why you get this huge number that think everyone else is doing this, and actually they're not. Um, so uh, I'm still, you know, having seen the individual um, incidences that arise out of um, drug use and the tragedies, I'm still thinking 13 percent is too high, but at least it is an 80. Debbie, the, Debbie, the, the press today picked up on the consent uh, angle. Yeah, um, this is it. Yeah, this is interesting, and I think you know, the, there's there's some probably some things to to kind of unpack here about the wording of the question and stuff. I mean, it's always you know, <laughs> uh, but 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 it was essentially this idea that a student something like 58% of students agreed that students should be required to pass a sexual consent assessment before, you know, essentially being allowed to go to university. Um, and I think what this captures, so I, and I think, and, and actually, and a sort of, and a sort of slightly more kind of benign, <laughs> uh, but, but still quite worrying uh, finding, about two thirds said that they were sort of comfortable with, that they understood and they'd been taught sufficiently about consent. And about one third said that they really didn't feel that comfortable and uh, you know that, that they were kind of across across that um, and that to me is, is is the more worrying thing and Jim Jim wrote next on a blog this morning for the site and he and he draws out I think because I think there's a very it's a very reasonable case to make that university is not the best equipped organization to teach students about sex and relationships you know you can you can absolutely make that argument or say this is an academic sphere they're, they're adults you know this is not our job to kind of I guess bring them up to speed um, and you know and you can absolutely make that case but I think there's also a case to be made which Jim pulls out which is saying that Yes, except that if they don't know about this stuff and they're not comfortable with it and, and that's getting them into, as a consequence, that's getting them into some difficult situations which then kind of spiral out, that will actually affect their academic performance. You know, knowing and being comfortable with these issues is actually a precondition of being being able to learn effectively and therefore universities need to kind of uh, sort of accept that, that these are the students they have and kind of and kind of work with that. And it was also notable that, that about two-thirds felt that some uh, engagement with questions of sex and relationships and consent should be mandatory during the welcome week period or the kind of, you know, the sort of transition period, I suppose we would call it. Um, so I think a few things here. One, one, one is that this, that this does rather go against the kind of media narrative about, you know, the student Stasi kind of, you know, spying in, in you know, people's bedrooms and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, and, and this being, or, or, or indeed that, you know, uh, having to, t- you know, the, 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 there's something extremely demeaning about being told not not to rape and, and what consent means, as if as if this is kind of self-evident. I think a lot of people actually don't find it self-evident, and it's and and it, and it, and it can be hard to wrap wrap your head around it when you're talking about, uh, you know, complex interactions between two individuals, often you know, in the in the context of of drugs and alcohol. Um, the uh, you know, so, so there is a sense that kind of actually the wider student body might actually rather welcome the conversation. And then, of course, the other question is, is about sort of saying, how, how do you do this in a way that is um, supportive, that acknowledges the breadth of experience, um, that and, and, and that doesn't, I suppose, kind of uh, introduce shame into the into the equation? Because, of course, you know, and, and you know, just under half of students have never actually had a sexual encounter um, of those pulled when they come to university. So, you know, in some cases, you are actually talking about uh, a world in which there there is only actually limit, limited direct experience. Um, and and that and these sorts of things need to be taken account of as well. We're not talking about a very kind of uh, knowing group of group of young people. Actually, in lots of cases, we're talking about some some potentially rather innocent uh, people. So yeah, so, so I think I think it, it, it's 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 a bit of a head scratcher how you how you know how, how you tackle this stuff, particularly when there's a lot lot else to cover um, in those early in those early weeks. Mm. 
There is Debbie, but I think this is a really helpful report, really helpful, because it does, as you've outlined, it does describe that the students are, you know, very different in terms of their experience when they arrive at uni. But we do um, facilitate a lot of socialising, let's face it, both the university and the student union. Mm. That's what, you know, we do want the students to make a friendship group. We do want them to settle, you know, and have a a very good time. So Mm. it's all part and parcel of that, especially if the students are younger. So uh, I think it's part of our responsibility. And what I think we're missing here is the respect word because, you know, the respect and consent, they they go together. So the consent piece really helps build a culture of mutual respect amongst peers and also between students and staff. Don't forget, that's also a factor. So I found this massively useful because it's a great way to have the conversation now with students. It's actually given us a few more things to, to actually focus on. Um, and I think even pre-induction uh, material will be putting uh, in even more than we have. We'll be building on this and actually using this report. I think it's very helpful. I mean, Ben, again, sort of similar question about before. What's what's changed this year? Well, I, I suppose what's interesting is the the lack of that social interaction that people are having. That opportunity to form and develop friendships group friendship groups that give them that sense of belonging. Often students feeling very isolated. Um, but I also think you know, the the wider world is looking at this more. All of the reports in, uh, in we've seen recently from schools, um, universities, um, the workplace. Um, and, you know, it's probably time to start really getting serious about this. I mean, from from the moment that, um, that you know, the student movement has been talking about this for probably the last 15 to 20 years. And certainly, uh, we launched a big campaign in 2013 called We Get It, which was looking at um, making our campus safe and free of sexual harassment. Um, now, that was very surface level at the time. Um, but we've started to go deeper that, you know, the university has uh, recruited and appointed a, a sexual violence response team. Um, that takes this very seriously to start developing survivor-led approaches. Um, And, you know, again, like the uh, racism and discrimination work that we talked about before, putting students at the centre of change has to be the... um, the best way of looking at this. I think that's right. I think, well, I think, I think, and I think Eunice's point about respect is a really interesting one because, of course, you can be respectful to someone. Um, you can treat them well as a human being. You can uh, learn how to be kind of attentive to their needs uh, without ever having sex with them. You know, it might, it might never enter the sexual realm. And, and the more that those sorts of uh, behaviors and cultures are established and the more people are given, I guess, you know, language to challenge when, when, when people are being disrespectful, the more you, the more you change the culture that otherwise would allow incidents of, of, of misconduct and, and harassment and um, and violence to to sort of not not only to flourish but to go unchecked and, and to kind of have the sort of veil of kind of complexity and shame arise up around them. So yes, I think I think that's very true. And now it's time for the hidden history of higher education with Mike Ratcliffe. So records do show sometimes um, the depth of policy interaction between government and higher education. One of those opportunities is when uh, vice chancellors go to see the prime minister. Now in the late sixties. Vice-Chancellors were summoned in to see the Prime Minister because their students were so revolting um, that the Prime Minister had to share secret intelligence with them from the security services um, about the, the behaviour and, and get them to, to behave themselves. Uh, sadly, I couldn't find the notes of that meeting, but I did find the notes of the meeting that Ted Heath had with a group of Vice-Chancellors in 1973. And he'd widened the group, so not only did he see vice chancellors, he saw directors of polytechnics as well, because they'd come into being and Margaret Thatcher had not killed them off in her white paper, and so they were going strong. And the file is lovely because it contains the briefing notes 
for the ministers in advance of the of the setup, and it contains the, the the record of what happened at the meeting. So the briefing notes are are cheery because they set out for the prime minister what's going on. Um, the vice chancellors are concerned that the government doesn't love them, um, doesn't consider them relevant enough. So so says the uh, the briefing note. However, the polytechnics are in good heart. They have their preoccupations. Um, they want to have the clarification of their role with the local authority um, sorted out, uh, and that they're going to um, be quite happy with the uh, massive expansion, trebling, of their student numbers following the white paper. They're up for this, the polytechnic directors. There aren't many notes on the polytechnic directors, but there's this great section whereby each of the vice-chancellors has a little note given to Ted Heath to explain who they are uh, and what kind of character they have. So it sets out in in some detail. So Alan Bullock, who's the vice-chancellor of Oxford at the time, is a distinguished modern historian in manner very much the Oxford Yorkshireman, plain-spoken, witty and humane. Um, The first four-year Oxford vice-chancellor with a year to serve. Um... Dr. Morrison of Bristol is described as one of the younger vice-chancellors, 48, vigorous and open-minded, as well as very intelligent. Professor Armitage of Manchester is a very resourceful man, with an excellent judgment which he chooses to conceal under a bumbling manner. The notes go on, explaining what Ted can expect from each of the vice-chancellors in front of him. And clearly the, the evening goes well, they have a discussion, and it focuses on the key issue of whether universities should be providing thinkers or doers. And the representatives of the polytechnics argue that the major mistake made by universities was to value knowledge for the sake of knowledge. The great majority of graduates pursue their careers in the world of action, not of reflection. And this basic fact should be reflected in university entrance requirements and in final examinations. We're still waiting for that. Um, at present, the university's approach was too scholastic. So, they set themselves up in opposition. They are the relevant um, institutions providing people with a way into work. And Ted Heath um, sums up, and there's a note uh, picking up, that Heath is critical of the universities who too often fail to teach their students to think straight, to recognise quality, and without a thorough training in the basic intellectual processes the next generation would need to find themselves to compete. And here's a great example of why we'd need that. To argue the British case successfully in, for example, Paris or Brussels, would call for the highest standards of intellect and ability. At the same time, the education system had a major part in creating a more flexible social structure in the country, so that ability, wherever it might be found, could be developed and exploited to the full. Heath wants universities to help us in our new mission to be in Europe. Um, so... Not sure how that's going to turn out, but there we go. Um, that's that's what universities should really help to do. So Heath, of course, doesn't last long, but Margaret Thatcher is the Secretary of State, and she's there, and she listens to all of this and obviously participates in the discussion. And when you when she gets into power, you can see that distinction between the, the universities um, and their um, too academic and the polytechnics who are keen to do the work that the government wants to do. And eventually that wins them their freedom uh, at the end of the binary line. Wonkfest, our festival of higher education, returns in June. And because of the year we've all just had, we're using it as an opportunity to look ahead. What worked, what didn't, and how can we come back stronger as universities, professionals, and as a sector? And crucially, how can higher education drive the global recovery? It's all about how we build back higher. We'll hear from people who've been at the heart of the government response, like National Statistician Ian Diamond, Vice-Chancellors, Student Union Officers, and literally, and I mean literally, 
everything and everyone in between. It's online only this year, well, because you know why. But we're working hard to keep the best of the Wonkfest you know, bustling with insights you can take back to your institutions at the end. And Team Wonky will be on hand every step of the way to help guide you through it. It's all happening on 9th and 10th of June. The programme is out now and you can find out more and book your tickets at wonkfest.co.uk. And as usual, group discounts and plus and partner rates apply. We look forward to seeing you in June to help us build back higher together. Now, Debbie, there's a new journal of controversial ideas. Um, what on earth is going on? <laughs> so uh, this, this, is a, this is an idea that was uh, established in 2018 um, by a group of philosophers. Um, and if, you know, if, if, you're, if you're a philosophy person, you'll, you'll know these names, Francesca Minerva, Jeff McMahon, and Peter Singer. Uh, I, took a, I took a few philosophy modules back in the day, and I remember reading, reading Peter Singer. Um, and, and the idea is, is that this journal, it's open access. Um, this is a space where uh, ideas that uh, the authors might otherwise struggle to air in conventional academic uh, outputs, either because they, either because the editors were kind of, uh, you know, find those ideas distasteful, they were kind of outside of the common run, and they weren't sort of seen to be credible, or because the they were thought to be too controversial, and 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 the, and the fear was that they would generate kind of too much heat and and kind of controversy for for the, for the for the mainstream journals. So this is a space where where these ideas can be published and discussed, um, and you know, and and the kind of the, the, you know the, the driving force here is kind of freedom of speech, and of course, there's it, it gets a lot of attention because of all the concerns about about sort of wokeness on campus and and the thought police and, and freedom of speech and and academic freedom. Um, uh, my colleague David Kernan helpfully went and went and re- read in every article in the first issue and and, and was sort of entertainingly scathing about it on the site and then commend commend that article to readers. I think the point I would make, I, t- I tend to try try to be try to not be cynical, and I, I confess to not having read every piece. I think the I think the thing to say about this journal is that it's a journal of philosophy. Um, and, you know, I can't really speak, I'm not a philosopher, I can't speak to the kind of quality of the, uh, of the, of the sort of, of the academic rigour of, of the papers presented here. But I, I, I think they, they, you know, they, they, the articles have a lot of features of, of philosophical debate in that they are uh, essentially extracting uh, ideas from their context um, and, and trying to look at them very purely through, through particular kinds of theoretical lenses. So, for example, an article about uh, essentially advocates for the, the value of uh, silly ideas being allowed to be advocated on campuses. And it sort of says, look, we're not going to look at questions about about trans rights we're not going to look at questions about uh, you know race and and, and and racial harassment but we are going to look at this idea of flat earth and this is a very useful kind of philosophical tool to to explore the uh, the value to the production of knowledge of of debating silly ideas and you know the case is quite credible in that you know if if you had someone you know that that by engaging with a kind of bad argument you you might understand a good argument and and that there might be kind of merit um in that from a sort of epistemological viewpoint the problem is of course that when people are wrestling with these controversial ideas they're not doing it in in a vacuum they're not doing it devoid of political context or uh you know or or, or people who might be uh you know hurt or uh, harmed by by the consequences of decisions and that's why i think you know, I, 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 you know, I, I, I think, I think there's, there's merit in saying let's, you know, let, let's debate controversial ideas, and I think particularly when people feel strongly about it, it, it's just you, you can't, you can really make those decisions in, in a philosophical vacuum where, where, where everyone's a kind of rational actor, and, and it's, and it's all very kind of, um, you know, neutralised. Mm. Is it a legitimate reason to set up? Is it a legitimate journal? I mean, Eunice, you're a scientist. Can you set up a journal? For things that you want to say, even if you're, you know, you want to use it to to promote your racist ideology, is that just just because you call it a journal, does it make it a journal? 
I think that uh, the sector will decide on on whether or not it uh, gets any credibility. It's um, it sounds a bit tautological, but you know it's a contrarian journal in some respects appearing to be contrary for its own sake. And well, David's point about which other arguments it puts adjacent to, you know, which which arguments does it put adjacent um, to create that controversy and that contrarianness um, is is very telling. So I think as long as it's approached with uh, with that caution, um, it's almost the format is as important as some of the ideas that are in it. The format of each, how each of those articles is constructed and what's in and what's out is really interesting. Yeah, I suppose what, one thing that interested me is just that the hyperbole around this, you know, comparing themselves to Socrates and Galileo, who 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 often found it difficult to express their views at a time of intolerance. Now, I'm not sure any of these ideas have been stopped or had any trouble being published anywhere on the internet or um, or on university campuses. And, and this, this um, I suppose, this false hyperbole that's created as if this is a bastion of strength against something that doesn't really exist. Um, and, you know, these are things that we're wrestling with on a, on a daily basis. I mean, we were, there was a, a briefing at our university senate yesterday around um, freedom of speech. Um, and one of the things that we reflected is that uh, in the last five years alone, we've had nearly 3,000 external speakers of every stripe, every political stripe. Um, and I think we stopped one from speaking for safety reasons. Um, and so, you know, universe, this is going on in universities. I really love the comments on the site this morning um, that someone said that um, uh, perhaps Wonky should launch a, a journal of kitchen conversations at 3am after a night at the SU, <laughs> yeah. um, which, uh, which, is which what I, a lot of I would... Which is like, because it's exactly what a lot of this reads like. Absolutely. And, uh, and I'd, uh, I'd certainly subscribe to that journal. I think my, my favorite example being ultimate meaning, we don't have it, we can't get it, and we, and we should be very, very sad uh, in which the paper argues that there is no meaning to life, uh, which is hardly new or controversial um, or contrarian. Um, and uh, I guess the point is that, um, you know, this person's, this person's sad about that and is looking for, looking for validation. Well, I mean, in an era of positive psychology where there's, all, you know, there, there is, I mean, Barbara Ehrenreich has written a really interesting book about the kind of, um, the, the sort of social pressure to be happy. Um, and, and, you know, at the, but I suppose this is the point, isn't it? This is not a contrarian idea. This is, this, this is fairly, you know, this is very much on the on the spectrum of kind of ideas that are in circulation already. I, I agree with that, but I suggest that don't dip in if you do need clarification or if you feel depressed to start with. It's not a mood improver. <laughs> yes, you know. I think, it's also I, quite I, circular. I think you know, there's there's no there's no meaning to to all of our human endeavours apparently. I mean, I, I guess that includes this journal. I think it's, I think it's a question of bandwidth as well, isn't it? As, you know, if if you're if you're an academic philosopher who happens to take an interest in in ideas at the margin as a kind of social phenomenon, you know, this 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 absolutely might be your bag, and you know, you should, and, and you know, you, I think you can legitimately engage with that as an academic pursuit. If but if you're going to do that, you've got to be very very thoughtful and and re- and go in with 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 positive intentions and I think you know I think there is some evidence of this here of, of that here too um, but it's, it's just not clear to me that this is something that people who aren't who aren't that person should should kind of uh, should, should engage with or, or, or spend their time thinking about and I, and I certainly don't think it gives lay people you know not you know you know who, who are kind of facing some of these really challenging issues in their professional and, and daily lives I don't really think it gives them the tools to handle that so that's about it for this week remember to delve deeper into anything we discussed today you'll find links in the show notes don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically just search for the wonky show via spotify apple or google Podcasts, or wherever else you listen 
and to keep you and your organization ahead of everything that's going on in UKHE, do head to the website to find out more about our subscription services. So thanks to Eunice, Debbie, Ben, and Mike Ratcliffe and everyone else at Team Wonky that helps to make it happen behind the scene. Until next week, stay safe, stay wonky. Stay wonky.